Good morning, church. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to Luke chapter 8 and verse 26. Luke 8, verse 26. And we'll begin reading there in just a moment. I want you to think for a moment as you're turning there to the problems that you're experiencing in your own life. problems that you're experiencing in your own life. And if you're a Christian this morning and you know Christ, the Bible tells us that if that's true of you, then the Holy Spirit lives inside you. That He is involved in a process of changing your life to make you like Jesus. We are either cooperating with that process or we're wrestling with that process. And so God has very much has an agenda for your life. At the same time, as you and I encounter problems, trouble, we look around us, we look at our community, we see problems. Our county, our nation, it is absolutely discouraging to read the news and to hear story after story after story about trouble, disaster, problems, crime, tragedy, pain, anger, hurt, criticism, ridicule, whatever. The Bible tells us that the primary enemies that you have as a Christian are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, not the physical world that you see, but the world in the sense of an entire system of values. That if you put your life on autopilot, if you don't think or reflect, about your values and the choices and decisions you make, that the world has a ready, set, complete collection of values to help inform every decision that you make and to tell you that this is what you ought to do with your life, this is what you are here for, this is what you should plan for, this is what you should work for, this is what is good, this is what is bad. The world has its own system. God says that system is absolutely one of your enemies, and not to love it. The flesh, we've been studying in Romans, the men in our Thursday morning Bible study group, we have learned that inside of us as believers, we have not only the Spirit of God, but we also have sin as a force living in us in what is called our flesh. And that we have a choice to either take our body, our hands, our feet, our our head, our hearts, our minds, and give ourselves to the mastery of sin, which, by the way, Jesus has set you free from the mastery of sin. Whether you fully understand that or not, it is a fact. But I have to decide either to give myself to sin or to give my body, my mind, and all that I am to God to serve Him. But you're going to serve somebody. You're going to serve sin, 
that lives in your flesh and creates desires and you either feed those desires or not. The world, the flesh, the flesh is there. Or you're giving yourself to God. The world, the flesh. And then there's a third enemy, the devil. The devil. In the world in which you and I have grown up in, many of us going to schools that taught us that the way that you know truth is through scientific study, research, gathering empirical data, reaching conclusions based on the evidence that you can see, feel, and touch, and somehow sense. And yet the Bible tells us, and most of the world knows, I say that because in third world countries I don't have any trouble with what I'm about to say, we have completely concluded that reality is only that which I can see and feel and touch and measure. And yet the Bible and most of the world says, no, there's a whole entire dimension of reality that you cannot see and that is affecting your life. There's an entire world and there are personalities in that world and there are forces in that world that are seeking to influence you, take advantage of you, ruin you, destroy you. The, the Bible says that they are malevolent personalities. They are out truly to get you that Satan is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And what we're going to see in this story is all that he seeks to do, what his plan is for your life. And so you and I, whether we ever acknowledge it or pay attention to it, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, we are engaged in a great spiritual conflict, and that is the reality of the problems that you're having in your life. That is the reality of what we're seeing in our community or our county or our state or our nation or our planet. It is a manifestation of a spiritual war that is taking place and you are in the midst of it and you can choose to just be blind and go along like a lamb to the slaughter or you can open your eyes with the help of God, with his word, and you can engage in the battle. In this particular account from the life of Jesus, we're going to encounter a man who has been thoroughly demonized. Now, I know that some translations use the constructed word demon-possessed. You won't find it in this particular text. And demon-possession is an effort to translate a word that simply means to have a demon or to be influenced by a demon. And sometimes we develop very elaborate arguments about whether or not a certain kind of person can be demon-possessed when in fact the Bible says that condition is called daimonizomai and it means to be demonized, to have a demon, or to be influenced by a demon. This guy has one. And not just one, he has a whole busload of demons. And I think we have much to learn. So I want you to see uh, verse 26. And by the way, this happens Jesus and his disciples had been on a boat, and they were crossing over the lake, and uh, he laid down in the boat, fell asleep. There was this tremendous storm, and you ought to ask yourself, why was that storm happening? Why was this killer storm that was so scary that seasoned sailors thought they were going to die? And Jesus wakes up, and they have this very enlightening conversation. He tells the storm to stop it. 
and it stops. And right after that, they land on the shore where this man with thousands of demons runs up to him and falls at his feet. I just want to remind you that, that killer storms that kill people and that, that destroy us, that kill us, wound us, were never part of the original creation of God. Simply were not. And so something with a personality was behind this storm because Jesus spoke to it as if it could hear him and understand him, and it stopped. And so we come to verse 26. Then they sailed to the country, the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. When he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. But when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. What I want you to see first this morning is what demons do to a man. What demons can do, not only what they can do, what they did do to this man, but what demons can do to a man. This is the trajectory of demonic influence in my life and in your life. This is where they want to take you. This is what their achievement will be. Remember, we have the world, the flesh, and the devil. We can't blame everything on the devil, but when the devil is at work and he is fanning the flames of whatever temptation, whatever problem, whatever you and I are struggling with, this is the trajectory of what demons do to a man. And I want to remind you, we, we talked about this several weeks ago, I just want to remind you of what God's original purpose was for you and for me. When he created man in the garden, the Bible says he created humanity in the image of God. You remember that? And the image of God consisted of both a male and a female together, reflect the image of God. And I said several weeks ago that that, for me, tells me right away what God's purpose is in creating you and me. It's that we would reflect him to the rest of creation. We are his image, and we are called to make the invisible God visible through our lives. That is what we were made for. That is your purpose. I don't know what your goals are in life, but that is God's purpose for you. When man sinned, God had called us into a dependent, intimate relationship with himself, put humanity in a garden where they only had one rule to keep, to stay away from the knowledge of the tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, to remain in an intimate relationship with God and to simply be dependent on him that God knows what he is and who he is and, and how we can reflect him, and that comes through an intimate, dependent relationship on him. I cannot reflect who God is apart from God. And when man sinned, he said, I don't need God. 
to live my life. I can decide for myself what my purpose is. I can think for myself. I can make my own decisions. I can be the captain of my own soul. And he rejected the rule of God in his life. And ever since then, we said that man has been seeking answers for the whole that that left in every human soul. Seeking, why am I here? What is my purpose? Why do I exist? When Christ comes into a person's life, everything is restored. Not all at once. We have the damage of sin, the damage of Adam's influence, and we are descendants of Adam. We have all that in us. But now we have the presence of Jesus Christ, and and God calls me to be restored into his image. And what he does is he doesn't say, now go and act like me, do the best you can, be the best Christian that you can be, try to keep all the rules, do all the right things, say all the right things. He doesn't say that. He says, you can't do that. I want to live my life in you and through you. And so he comes to live his life in us. And all we are called to do is to surrender to his work in our soul. And to allow God, the invisible God, to make himself visible through our lives as he lives his life through us. But this man wasn't there. At this moment, this man, the Bible says... When Jesus shows up, the demon knows immediately who he is. He runs up to him. But I want you to see what he's done to this man. I see that he's been driven from the city into the wilderness. He's been driven from the city, and he's now out in the wilderness. And the influence of this demon on this individual man has created isolation and loneliness. Some of the most lonely people you'll ever want to meet are people who live in crowded cities. And this man had been driven from all human contact and human relationships and had been brought to a place of complete isolation. That demonic influence wants to accomplish that in your life and mine. Keep us from being transparent. Keep us from being in relationship with one another, keep us from knowing each other, keep us from interacting with each other, bring us to a place where we feel like no one knows who we are, no one cares about who we are, and we think that we can live our life apart from any other human being, in the worst case scenario, we can be like this person and find ourselves isolated and cut off. The Bible also says he wore no clothes. Obviously, the demonic influence had moved him to a place of total loss of dignity and a complete devotion to some form of sensuality. No clothes. No clothes. We have this idea that, that by investing ourselves in our sexuality, that somehow that means throwing off all inhibitions, all uh, statements about what is right or the wrong use of sexuality. We don't even want to be defined as male and female as a culture. We want to shake our fists in the in the face of God and say, I can be what I want to be, do what I want to do, decide what I'm going to do when I want to do it. You don't have to look very far in our culture, look very far on the internet to know that the most, the greatest business in the world is pornography. The influence that it's having 
not outside the church, but inside the church. On men and women, boys and girls, destroying their lives, destroying their ability to be married, to have a real relationship with someone else. And this enemy has moved this man into this complete loss of self, loss of dignity. He doesn't wear any clothes. It says, nor did he live in a house but in the tombs. Not in a home, not a place with windows and light and life and where others can come and go, but out in the tombs where there's nothing but darkness and death and a complete preoccupation with that, with dark things and death. And once again, you don't have to look very far in our culture to see the expression of that among people who don't know Christ. The most popular shows, the most popular films, the most popular things in our culture. What most of our culture will do tomorrow will not be anything like a harvest festival at Wynn Baptist Church. It will be a total devotion to everything that is dark and ugly and gross. And that is without question an influence of an enemy who says that this is cool. There's something of fascination with this. The darker it can be, the bloodier it can be, the more horrendous that it can be. This account is also given in the Mark chapter 5, in verse 5 of Mark 5, it says, And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Just constantly crying out, day and night, and cutting himself with stones. Now, we literally have a problem of cutting in our society, where people cut themselves. But this also speaks to self-destruction. Again, a preoccupation with death, a preoccupation with pain, a preoccupation with hurting others or receiving pain and somehow thinking that that is good. Verse 29 says he was kept under guard when they did try to keep him in town. I don't know what he was like when he got around people. But when they did try to keep him in town, they chained him. They put shackles on him. They put guards on him. And, and he exhibited an unrestrainable, obsessive behavior. He could not stop. He could not be controlled. No matter what everybody else told him he could do, no matter what they did to him, he would break the chains, demolish the shackles, overcome the guards, and leave the town and run out to the place of darkness and death, the tombs. Obsessive, uncontrollable behavior. How many times? Has a pastor, has a church leader, has a deacon, has a Sunday school teacher sat with someone and said, God can change your life. And they say, I can't stop. I can't change. Nothing can help me. Nothing can make this better. And that's a lie of the enemy. That's the trajectory that a demon wants to take every human heart. And one sin is not enough. You can't do it just once. And you keep feeding it, and you keep feeding it, and you keep giving yourself to it over and over again, and it becomes a monster that takes on a life of its own. That's what demons do to a man. And listen, this is a deadly serious business. There may be someone sitting here who finds themselves like this man. But I assure you there are people that you know. 
Everything comes to a stop right now, and we just all stop, and we look at our lives. There are individuals around us, people that you know. This is their life. And they don't need someone just to tell them that they're wrong. They need Jesus. They need the Lord Jesus to come to put it right you know when Jesus came he came saying repent for the rule of God the kingdom of God his rule his authority his power is at hand it's right here right now it's not something that's coming yeah there's a day coming where the kingdom would be fully ushered in but he said right now in my form with who I am the kingdom is here right now it's at hand And Jesus not only proclaimed that the kingdom was here, Jesus demonstrated that the kingdom was here. When he told storms to stop it and said, that's not what God does when he's in charge. When he healed sick people, he said, that's not what God has in the world when he made it, when he's in charge. When he cast demons out, he said, that's not the way God made a human life to be lived. And he put things again and again, he put them back the way God made them, the way God intended them to be. That's the kingdom of God. That's what we're moving towards. But dear ones, that is what we are called to preach and demonstrate in our own walk, in our home, in our lives, in our church not caving in to the world, the flesh, and the devil, but being set free by Jesus Christ. And so I want you to see not what just demons do to a man. That's pretty dark. But I want you to see what Jesus does to demons. What Jesus does to demons. Look at verse 30. Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? And he said, legion, because many demons and entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that he would permit them to enter them. And he permitted them. The demons went out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. It's really interesting. The demons, you know, they're spirit beings. They're spirit beings. They, um, as spirit beings, they have access to both parts of reality. Uh, reality is what I can see plus what I can't see. And as a spirit being, they have access to both sides of reality. And when Jesus set foot on the, on the soil, you saw what the man did earlier. He runs up. Uh, Mark says he actually worships him. He runs up and he says to him, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? He knows immediately who Jesus is. They look and they see not just a man getting out of a boat, walking on the shore. They see Jesus Christ, the son of the most high God, and they are scared to death. Someday we're going to look, those of us that know Christ, 
One day we're going to look and we're going to say, you know, culture made Satan, made demons to be so frightful and so scary. And when we see what they really are and how small they really are compared to our God, I think we'll be stunned. These are spirit beings, however. They have personality. They're individual personalities. There were many demons in this man. His name was Legion. A Roman legion had 5,000 soldiers in it. This guy was infested with these spirit beings. They had personality. They had the ability to speak. They had the power of thought. Uh, They had a purpose. They had a mission. They had an objective in holding on to this guy. Mark adds in uh, Mark 5, verse 10, that when they were begging that they would not be sent to the abyss, which apparently Jesus could have just said, go, you're gone, and they would not be able to move about the earth anymore. But he didn't do that. And they begged him, don't make us leave this country, they said in Mark 5.10. Don't make us leave this country. They were begging him not to send them out of the country. I'm not endorsing a particular kind of teaching when it comes to spiritual warfare. But I will say that that passage alone convinces me that there is such a thing as a demon that prefers one part of the country over another. Prefers one place over another place. Prefers to be dealing with one group of people over another group of people. They get attached, and it ain't sweet. And so they're begging him, don't make us leave this country. Don't send us into the abyss. Now, I just want to pause and say that this poses a real problem for liberal Christianity, Christianity that does not believe that this is an inspired book in the sense of God breathing it, every word, every story, every thought being from God to teach us, to reveal to us things not only about the seen world, but about the unseen world. This story is a real problem. And, and I have a real problem with liberal Christianity because it makes no sense to me. I think if I did not believe that the Bible were true, I would live the rest of my life totally uncertain about what truth was. Because you got to know, you got to have some source for truth. I can't just believe something, take your word for it. I need to know that something is true. How do you know the truth? Well, we talked about it earlier. Reality consists of the seen and the unseen. For the liberal Christian who rejects Scripture, well, there may be some unseen world, but we don't have to worry about it. Most of truth that we need to be concerned with is right out in front of us. It's the seen. However, the rest of the world understands that reality consists of the seen and the unseen, and they experience the unseen. Anyone can experience the unseen realm. That's why you have people who don't even know Christ. They're talking about things that they experience, that they believe come from a realm that we cannot see. But what's the truth about that realm? How do I know what's truth about that realm? Well, the Bible tells me the only way I can know what the truth is about the world I cannot see is if God reveals it to me. 
That God did not leave us to sit around and reflect and think and guess and wonder about who he is or what he's like and make our own decisions based on my own uh, smarts and intelligence and education and say, well, God can't be against this behavior. God is good and this is loving behavior. And just because these people are doing this doesn't mean it's sinful. And people who would say that, they are the most terrible kind of people and I become judgmental and I'm making life decisions for myself and for others because I have rejected revelation and I'm depending now on reflection in my own conclusions in my own mind. The Bible says you can't do that. Your mind is broken. Your mind is darkened. Your mind is not going to reach a conclusion about truth unless God reveals it to you. I need revelation. Why do you think God sent Jesus into the world? So that he could reveal himself to us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If I want to know the truth about me, if I want to know the truth about my life and the people around me, if I want to know the truth, God is the only one who can tell me the truth about me or anyone else or what I'm seeing happening around me. And even then, I don't always know. And so I can depend on just one half of the equation, look for evidence, empirical evidence, things I can measure. There's going to be a whole lot I don't understand if I take that approach. I can reflect and assume that my mind is free of bias, free of desire, free of any kind of sinful influence, and I can trust my mind. But how can we all be right? Somebody has to be wrong. I've chosen revelation. As your pastor, but just as a man, as a brother, I've chosen to believe that God's word is true. Not any church tradition not what any man has thought up or concluded or decided that we should be doing or what we should be doing as Christians, that, that everything I need to know about life that God wants me to live, I can discover right here in his book. And that has been, by the way, a position that we as Baptist Christians have held for centuries. So liberal Christians are embarrassed by all of this. They say, you know, Jesus, surely he knows the truth. Jesus surely knows the truth. No, there are no such things as demons or spirit beings. Jesus knows the truth. He's just accommodating these primitive beliefs of these very simple uh, pre-scientific people. That's what he's doing. And so what this guy has, obviously, is some kind of really messed up mental condition. He has a neuropsychiatric condition because it's affecting him physically, and so his brain somehow is pumping adrenaline, pumping some things into his body. He has this supernatural ability, supernatural strength, and this weird behavior. He has this neuropsychiatric breakdown. It's a kind of a disease, and Jesus knows that. He's just accommodating them, saying, oh, it's a demon, a bunch of demons. How's that? The only problem I have with that is if this is a disease of the mind, a neuropsychiatric condition of human beings, it also happens to be a neuropsychiatric condition that a 2,000 pigs can catch. And so PETA would want to know about that because that's pretty serious. That's the Ebola of the swine world. Whatever it is that I got that they can get. 2,000 of them. Jesus commanded the demons to leave. They entered into the swine. They run down the hill. They all drowned themselves. 
They didn't waste any time putting an end to the pig business. Liar and a murderer from the beginning. That's what Jesus does to demons. He's a big demon duster. He is the champion with a simple command. Third thing I want you to see is what Jesus does for a man. What Jesus does for a man. Look at verse 34. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed. Now look at this. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They were afraid. This guy had been controlled by thousands of demons. Nobody else could control them, and this guy just came up and said a word. By the way, this is one of the reasons why Jesus was accused of somehow being in league with Satan. Because he so easily and simply and with full authority said, leave, and they left. Here's what Jesus does for a man. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's no longer restless. He's no longer running. He is at peace. His heart is settled. He's at the feet of Jesus. He's no longer alone or seeking isolation. He is with somebody, and he is at peace in that state. He is clothed. His dignity and his humanity have been restored to him. He's not living his life out in the gutter, giving giving his life to his worst possible nightmare urges. And then it says he's in his right mind. He's no longer driven. His personality is restored. Jesus has taken this man who had been demonized by thousands of demons, caused him to leave. The man is now restored. And the word that's used there is a word for salvation. He has been rescued. He has been restored. How many people do you know that need to be restored, that need to be rescued? And we sit around and we say, boy, they shouldn't do that sin. They shouldn't do that sin. Isn't it terrible that they do that sin? All the while, we don't understand that sins are symptoms. Here's the problem. They don't know God. That's the problem. They've not met Christ. And when they meet Jesus, when they come to Jesus, they can be restored. You can be changed, transformed, set free. The last thing I want you to see is how people react when Jesus shows up. How people react when Jesus shows up. Look at verse 36. They also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. What was the means? What was the means? The means was he took all the demons, put them in a bunch of pigs, and the pigs all committed pig suicide. Verse 37, then the whole region, the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. Jesus, we don't want you here. They completely rejected Jesus Christ. They are fueled by fear, the Bible says. They are afraid of him. They are afraid of who he is. They are afraid of what he represents. They are afraid of what he might do to them. Can you imagine any kind of scenario by which Jesus Christ would come to a town and people would say, we don't want you here because it's happening in our world. It's happening around us. He has complete authority and power when I understand who Jesus really is. 
that, if I don't want to give up my own autonomy, if I don't want to submit to him, if I don't want to obey him, if I want to keep doing my own thing, living my own life, being the captain of my own soul, the master of my own fate, he's going to scare me to death. Because when you truly meet Jesus, you realize you can't go on living for yourself. You can't go on just doing what you want to do every day. What am I going to do with myself today? No, you have a king, and he has a kingdom. And if you're in his kingdom, you're supposed to bow down to him. You're supposed to yield to him. And he wants to make himself known. He wants to make himself known to all the world, and he wants to do it through you and through me, this king. I'm so afraid of him. I want you to see, though, Jesus does not force himself on the town people. He says, you don't want me? You don't want what I came here to do? You don't want my leadership as your Lord, Jesus says? You don't want that? He doesn't even argue with them. They say, leave. He says, all right. He leaves. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine a greater tragedy? We started this story looking at a man who was demonized. Do you think this town, all the demons had left? Do you think because this guy had 2,000 that he was the only demonized person in the town? You know what they were saying? We like our pigs. We like our demonized crazies. We'd rather live with our demonized crazies, the people who are, whose lives are in the gutter, whose people whose lives are being destroyed, people who are in total, complete bondage, who have sold themselves out to sin and darkness, who are living in darkness, who are obsessed with darkness. We'd rather live with them than have you, Jesus, come in and mess it up. And Jesus leaves. He leaves. You know, some of us have been praying for revival for a long time. I know some of you have been praying for revival at Wind Baptist Church long before I got here. Do you know what we're asking for when we pray for revival? We're asking that the Lord Jesus would come. Are we prepared to welcome him? Am I prepared to lay down my future, my agenda, my plans, my retirement, my whatever? Am I willing to lay that down and say, Lord, whatever you want? There's another reaction, though. Not only does the town reject him, there's another reaction. Look at verse 38. Now, the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Now, this reaction is, is beautiful. It's remarkable. Because what is he doing? He says, Lord, if you're leaving, I want to go with you. Wherever you're going, I want to go with you. He wants to be intimate with Jesus. He wants to stay with Jesus. He wants to know Jesus. He wants to hear Jesus. He's all about Jesus. He doesn't want to go home. I don't know if he had family back there. They certainly don't ever seem to show up. I don't know if he had friends. I don't know what he had back there, business. I don't know what. Jesus had restored him. He could go back and get his whole life back. Whatever his life had been, he could get his whole life back. He doesn't care about his old life. He wants life with Jesus. That's all he wants. And Jesus says, I understand you want to be intimate with me. Here's what I want you to do, though. I want you to go home. Go to your town. 
I want you to tell everybody what God has done for you. I want you to tell everybody what God has done for you. You know what the man does? He goes and he tells everybody what Jesus, look at the text, what Jesus had done for him. You see, that man, wherever he was inside his own body, and those demons said, what do you want with us? Jesus, Son of God, the Son of the Mighty God, what do you want with us? Somewhere in the back of his personality, maybe he was just a spectator riding along as these people were doing all these crazy things inside of him, this personalities just running amok in his body. But he knew who Jesus was. He knew. And so the response of this man was one of desire for intimacy with Jesus, and the other was to please Jesus no matter what he asked me to do. No matter what. I want to please Jesus. He wants me to go home and tell everybody what God's done for me. I'm going home. I'm going to tell everybody what God's done for me. A heart that wants to please Jesus, a heart that wants to be with Jesus. How's your heart? You knew we were going back to that. We've been talking about the heart for two months. What kind of heart response do you have? Putting yourself in that story. Would you be in the the people group, the town that says, Jesus, would you please leave? Or is your group, I want to be intimate with Christ. I want to please Jesus. Or maybe you're like this guy on the front end, and you're in a very dark place right now, and you just need to know him. You need to meet him. You need to experience what happens when the God in Christ comes into a human soul. In a moment when we stand and sing, without hesitation, certainly without worrying about what everybody else will think or say, if you need to trust Christ today, if you need to be set free, if you want the Lord to come in and live inside of you and possess your life, and drive out those demonic influences and forces in your own life, I want to encourage you to come and receive Christ today. Put your trust in him. The Bible says he came to do this not only 2,000 years ago, he is still doing it. He told us to go and, and preach the gospel, to make disciples. Why? So that people like this guy who are alive today could be set free. And he wants to set you free. So when we stand and sing, I want to invite you to come. We'll share scripture with you. We'll help you understand what you're doing. You can read it in the Bible for yourself. You don't have to take our word for it. And you can be set free today by Jesus Christ, the same one we just read about. He is here. He's here. And then, brother or sister, how long? How long? How long will it be before we say, you know, Christ set me into a new place so that I could be free. I'm going to start living like it. How long before you and I go to a place and realize the possessions that are ours in Christ? I don't have to keep living the way I've been living. Jesus died to set me free. And he lives in me. Not as a helper to just kind of help me out when I'm in a crack, when I'm in trouble. He's there as my Lord, as my King. And I can be as intimate with him as I want to be. Is your heart to please him? When we stand and sing, you may just want to sing. You may want to bow your head. 
You may want to come and pray at the altar for yourself or someone that you know. I believe Jesus wants to come to win Arkansas. So, well, Pastor, I think he's already here. Is he in charge? Is he here in his full kingly power and presence? Is he able to direct us anytime he wants to do whatever he wants? I don't think so. Do you? I want him to come. I want him to come.